history with the podcast guy, Matt King. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to our podcast. Unfortunately, for some, our topics that we talk about may be offensive to some people. The topics that we discuss could also be triggers, and we want you to be aware of that. If you are in need of help, please talk to a professional, a family member, or a friend. We are not medical professionals, and we don't claim to be. We are just two guys with a microphone and a platform. Please listen with discretion. Welcome to This Time in History, guys. I'm Matthew, and we're here again with another interview covering the 2022 municipal election. With me today, she's running for Ward 11, University Rosedale, Miss Diane Sachs. Welcome to the show, Diane. Hello, how are you? I am great. You know, I love your community. You know, a lot, um, most of you didn't register until late, but uh, your community, your ward, sorry, is passionate and it's, it's, it's got a special vibe, maybe is the right word. I I really, really like your, um, your ward. I just wanted to say that. Well, I do too. And I have very deep roots here, about 120 years worth my mother was born in this riding and grew up here, and I was born here, and my kids were born here, my grandchild's born here. Uh, I went to school here, I've worked here, my uh, my synagogue's here. I've been here a long time. That's amazing. So this is the uh, part in the interview where uh, you can engage with the uh, voters and ultimately answer the questions, why are you running, why this election, and why now? I'm running because we have urgent issues to address. Uh, My top priority is a climate, housing, and how we get around to work and play. And those three things are all very tightly integrated. I have spent a whole lifetime fighting for a livable world. I've been an environmental and energy lawyer since, uh, well, I graduated from law school in 1974. I've worked in the public sector, the private sector. I've worked for businesses and governments. And over that time, uh, and I was the last environmental commissioner of Ontario. And over that time, I have had the privilege of learning an enormous amount about the deep trouble that we're in and the opportunities that we have. And we're letting the trouble grow and grow and we're letting the opportunities slip away. I have children and grandchildren and I have a great sense of urgency for their future. Uh, I did run provincially because the provincial government has um, much more money and authority and tremendous opportunities to be setting us on the right path. But the people of Ontario chose a government that is taking us in exactly the wrong direction. So where is the opportunity to do tangible things now that can give us a better life next year and in five years and in 10 years? It's at city council. City Council makes decisions that matter to that future every day. And now that there's an opportunity, I feel an obligation to be part of it. That's amazing. Um, I just wanted to jump in with a a quick question. Sorry again. Um, You said uh, 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 you're very passionate about climate. and uh, You know what? Climate is very important. But for me and for the listeners, I'm just wondering if you could uh, maybe educate on what we can do about climate at, <clears throat> I am so sorry, at, uh, at the municipal level. Well, actually, it's huge. 
Uh, most research shows that uh, cities have a strong influence on about half of our climate and environmental impact, as well as an enormous influence on how well we will be able to withstand the hammer blows that climate change is bringing us. And housing and how we get around are two of those big ones. So um, let's talk first about how we get around. So in the last 50 years, most decisions have been made to give priority to cars over people. And that creates enormous climate pollution. It creates carnage on the roads. It creates dirty air. Um, it's inflationary because we're dependent on fossil fuels. Ontario spends 15 to $25 billion every year just importing fossil fuels. And it's all unnecessary. We have better ways to get around. So what research has shown and what experience has shown all around the world is that we can be healthier, we can be happier, we can have a stronger economy if we give priority to active travel and to transit over individual fossil and diesel cars. And that'll make our city quieter and safer and more prosperous with cleaner air. Um, and it also allows us to accommodate the huge number of people that are coming. We have already, I think, 95 development applications in University of Rosedale. There's a lot more people coming downtown. There isn't any more room on the roads. We can already see how much worse congestion is than it was before the pandemic, as so many people have moved into individual cars rather than taking transit. And it's, it's intolerable and will become much more intolerable as the population continues to grow. So if we want people to be able to get around in a safe and convenient and healthy way, if we don't wanna see people killed and mangled on our streets, well, we know what to do. We have to turn more road space over to the things that save lives and save climate and keep the air clean, which is active travel, walking, rolling, cycling, and good public transit. So so you're a big uh, advocate for for bike lanes, yes? Well, walking first, right? Most travel is done by walking. A huge amount of tra travel is done by walking. And that's also how people get to stores and so on. It, it's interesting. I was looking at some research recently that uh, store owners estimated that a quarter of their customers drove to their stores in, in downtown Toronto. And in fact, it was 4%. Really? Most people get there by walking and cycling. And we've seen that also in the data that the city collected over the, the um, King Street pilot and the Bloor Street bike lanes. L traffic for local businesses goes up when the streets have more people and fewer cars. So it's better for business, it's better for health. Did you know that people who bike to work, especially people sort of you know 40 to 69 my age, you can cut your chance of death 40% by biking to work. I did not know that. Uh, but <clears throat> what's the um, if what's the, the general occupation for that age range? Because I, I got to be honest with you, I've only ever had labor jobs in my life. And the last thing I want to do is bike to and from a labor job because I already have to spend that energy doing my job. I don't want to have to you understand what I mean? Yeah, I don't you're tired at the end of the day. So maybe an e-bike is the solution for you. Um, and we get a lot of attention to electric vehicles, but in fact, electric bikes are far outselling electric vehicles and they're a lot cheaper. 
and they're more fun and they can do most of the same job. And, you know, I have to go up and down that big hill in Toronto um, very, very frequently. And at my age, that was, and, and I've got, you know, bad joints. It was getting really hard, especially if I'm lugging uh, a full bag of things and maybe the dog and the dog trailer and everything else, or at least the, the dog carrier. Well, now I've got an e-bike. Uh, I can go anywhere in the city. Um, it's usually faster than driving. The joke that I heard was two of the worst problems in North America are how to lose weight and how to find parking. And an e-bike solves both both of those. That's amazing. Yes. I never realized that before. And they're super cheap. So uh, I have a podcast myself called Green Economy Heroes. Yeah. Um, you can go ahead and plug it. Okay, fantastic. So I set it up because I was really looking for hope and feeling very discouraged about climate and all the trouble that we're in. And so I started interviewing green business leaders, uh, owners, founders, leaders of businesses across Canada that reduce our carbon footprint. And one of them is an e-bike manufacturer who holds the Guinness record for the longest e-bike trip. So he went something like 8,000 kilometers on his e-bike. Do you want to guess how much the electricity cost? What was the fuel cost for that trip? Nothing. It's an e-bike. It's an e-bike. Well, you have to pay for the electricity. It cost him six bucks. Wow. To go 8,000 kilometers. And so, you know, for most people, being able to do without a personal car saves them about $10,000 a year. That's the equivalent of a really big raise. Yep. But it's only possible if we have good public infrastructure, good public services, good transit, safe places to walk or bike or roll, depending on what you do. Um, we can't expect individuals to do this if they're putting their life at risk every time they go outside their door. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about the budget um, for a little bit. I'm just wondering, you know, we're just coming out of the pandemic or so we're told and, you know, the city's bleeding money. We have a $1.6 billion backlog in TCHC repairs. The TTC is going to be half a billion dollars, uh, short in their funding, according to their numbers, but not short enough that Mr. CEO doesn't get a 21% increase. And I'm sure, I could go on about uh, either important decisions that have to be addressed or budget, maybe budget cuts. I, I'm not sure. And I'm just wondering um, if you uh, had anything that you wanted to say on the budget, perhaps maybe uh, a different way of, of thinking or looking at the budget and anything you want to say on that topic. Sure. The pandemic has certainly made things worse for municipalities all around the world and especially in North America. But Toronto's problem is longstanding. Uh, you might remember that in 2016, the you know, chief administrative officer after chief administrative officer has told city council, we cannot go on like this. We are in deep trouble. We can't maintain our infrastructure. We can't keep up our services. We don't have enough money for emergencies. We cannot keep going like this. And so that's why in 2016, the city commissioned a study of its revenue options and considered them in 2017 and basically did nothing. In order to have a city that works, 
We have to raise the money to pay for the services and the infrastructure that we all need. And we'll need even more as more and more people come this way. And I will say also that we know that climate change is going to, again, increase the cost of operating the city, increase damage to infrastructure. Um, so this, And what our plan has been up until now is to put top priority on keeping property taxes low at the cost of letting everything else deteriorate and crumble. And you can see the effects everywhere. You can see it in not even having water fountains and bathrooms open in the middle of a ferociously hot summer. So a city that works has to raise the money that it needs. Now, there are some things the city would need provincial permission to do. So one of the revenue tools that was identified in that study in 2016 was that the city should ask for authority to, rate, to levy a 1% or 2% sales tax. And you remember the um, sales tax used to be 2% higher in mm -hmm. Canada room to put it back up, um, the city would have to ask the province for permission to do that, and I think they should. But there are a lot of revenue tools that the city has within its own control that they have simply refused to use. The simplest example, we used to have a vehicle registration tax. It's one of the things that was specifically given to the city of Toronto. Rob Ford kiboshed it. We haven't put it back. Um, we don't charge nearly enough for land transfer tax on expensive real estate. Um, other things that were identified as really important in the revenue study were an alcohol tax, road tolls, and, and uh, um, increased car parking fees. These are all things the city could do immediately that would help address its revenue hole and allow it to pay for the services and the infrastructure that we need, including the ones that you mentioned. And then there are some um, additional tools that not only raise revenue from the city, but also help achieve really important social goals. So, for example, a vacant home tax and speculator tax. These have been identified around the world as important tools to help deal with our housing challenge. There are a huge number of empty dwelling units across the city um, some of them just completely vacant, some of them being used for Airbnb that nobody's living in that are badly needed for housing. So a vacant home tax and a speculation tax will help bring those units back onto the market. A second example of a revenue tool that also achieves a really important social goal is one thing that climate change does is make flooding worse. And Toronto, it, many parts of Toronto are highly vulnerable. Um, there are three big contributors to flooding. One is climate change. One is deteriorating stormwater infrastructure, and a lot of ours is really old and inadequate. And the third is hard surfaces, having basically asphalt everywhere. So the water falls, there's no place for it to go. And that means it doesn't go into the soil to feed the trees, so the trees die of thirst, but it runs off really fast, causing flooding and polluting the lake and closing our beaches. The this is something that I studied when I was the Environmental Commissioner of Ontario and reported to the legislature that in order to pay for the stormwater infrastructure that we need and to give people a financial incentive to let water infiltrate where it falls, basically green space, green roofs, trees, and so on, we need what's called a stormwater uh, um, tax or area fee so that if you have hard surfaces, you pay for it. Because that having a hard surface, if you've got a paved driveway, you are dumping cost onto the city every time it rains. 
Why should you be able to dump that cost on the city for free? Why should a giant mall be able to dump all its water into the city sewers for free and have everybody downstream paying with pollution closed beaches, flooding and so on? Um, so those are two examples of things that the city should be doing anyway, even if it didn't need the money. But we do need the money and we need to deal with flooding and we need to deal with vacant vacant dwellings. So the city has a lot of options. It's time to put on our big boy pants and pay our own way. Wow. <clears throat> You've just blown my mind. I, I, these are things that maybe, I, you know, I should have known I'm doing this podcast, but wow, I, I, I you know, these are things I didn't even think of. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize that a, a paved driveway, every time it rains, yeah, the rainwater goes into the sewer, but not before it goes through the asphalt. I, I, I didn't think of that, but you're, you're absolutely right. Wow. I wrote a whole report on it, if you want. <laughs> it's, it's, it's on my website, votefordiane.ca. Um, but, you know, this isn't new news. And we've seen many places around the world see enormous benefits from, you know, trying to make friends with water. Water is one of the, uh, as somebody said, if climate change is a shark, water is its teeth. We're going to need the water and we're going to be vulnerable to the water. And just pretending that concrete pipes are going to solve it is deluding ourselves. It can't. Absolutely. Uh, moving along, I want to talk about transit. Um, we touched on it a little bit with the budget, but in terms of uh, expansion, you know, we, we've seen it expand into the north, into York region. Just wondering uh, if you would support expansion um, into the east, into Peel region, into the, uh, sorry, into the west, into Peel region, into the east, in uh, into Durham region. And all, all together, what, what do you see for transit uh, in the next four years? Well, my top priority would be increasing service within the city. Uh, I don't think that we should be subsidizing more and more sprawl. That's not good for anybody, but we do need much better service within the city. Um, it, it needs to be frequent and it needs to be reliable and it should be clean. We know that electric buses are a much higher quality of service. They're quiet, first of all. They don't pollute the people behind or the people in the bus. They're much more comfortable. Um, they, do, they are part of the answer to our climate challenge. And if you put electric buses on dedicated bus lanes, you get fast, quiet, convenient, high-class transit service that people can absolutely count on. Um, and that's what it takes. I mean, people are sensitive, of course, to the cost of transit, but they're much more sensitive to the reliability and timeliness of transit. And that's where dedicated bus lanes are so important because if you've got a wonderful bus and it's stuck behind a whole batch of SUVs, it's not doing anybody much good. If it's on its own um, bus lane and can go quickly where it needs to go, then you get really good service and a lot of reason for people to take it. Now, we also need to support the TTC financially while ridership recovers, as you mentioned. Uh, and at the same time, we need to pay attention to the large number of people who are in real economic distress. Uh, TDC Riders has an excellent platform, and what they point out is that, um, you know, supporting the TDC while ridership recovers, expanding the fare pass uh, TDC discounts for low-income people, um, are go hand-in-hand hand with increasing service and electrification to provide 
climate benefits and a fairer city. Uh, one other thing where Toronto really should learn from Kingston is to provide free transit for high school students. What Kingston has shown is that high school students are just at the stage of starting to get their independence, to establish the patterns that they use for their whole life and to explore their city. If kids, high school students get to travel transit, they gain independence, they gain a habit of getting around the city by transit and it is transformative for them. It also allows um, you know, school trips by low-income areas that other low-income schools wouldn't otherwise be able to afford to do it. So it's a real investment in social justice as well as a significant investment in climate justice by giving access to transportation to those who need it most. And Kingston has shown it works really well and it doesn't cost very much. We should do it. Yes. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. It's uh, it's definitely something worth uh, worth looking at. Um, <clears throat> I've also heard of uh, somebody else told me about uh, 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 transit fare geared to income. So there's, I mean, to a certain extent, that's what the fare pass is, right? It provides discounted um, rides and monthly passes to those who are receiving social assistance. And the expanded proposal is to also give it to people who have very, very low incomes. I think that's a really good and valuable program. Um, it wasn't fully funded in the 2023 budget, and it should be. But this is another example. If we don't collect the revenue we need to provide good services, we can't provide the services that we know the city needs. Um, and we should. One of, the other, one of the other things we know about giving low-income people access to transit is it greatly increases their chance of getting to medical appointments, um, getting jobs because they can travel to where the jobs are, um, having better nutrition, improving health. So we know that there's huge benefits for giving those who need most access to transit, but that takes money. And we, that money isn't going to come from Mr. Ford. We're going to have to raise it ourselves. Absolutely. Um, moving along, I wanted to talk about uh, unhoused people and um, affordable housing. Now, I'm sure you, like me, watched sorry again, uh, what happened in Trinity Bellwoods uh, with the dismantling of the encampments. And I was, I, I have to be honest with you, I was disgusted. I was embarrassed. Uh, I was horrified at what happened. And, um, you know, I'm just wondering what, what more can we do? Because um, I'll, I'll tell you really quick, uh, I used to live in Ward 6, the former Ward 6, which is now Ward 3, Etobicoke Lakeshore. We had a um, homeless shelter that was being, I don't know, studied, commissioned. I don't really know what the right word is, uh, but it was planned for um, Lakeshore close to Islington. And whether it was community outcry or the city changed their mind or whatever, it's not happening now. And I, I would assume that that's not the first case of that happening in Toronto. It probably happens all over. I'm just assuming. Um, what more can we do to help the unhoused? Because I can't watch stuff like what happened in Trinity Bellwoods and, and, and do nothing. I, I want to help them. And for the affordable housing contingent, 
I'm sorry to lay all this on you. Um, you know, we've seen condos go up at a fast rate in the last 10 years and there's more coming. Like you said, there's more in, in your ward. There's more coming up uh, on the Queensway in, in uh, Tobacco. And there's supposed to be an affordable housing contingent with these condo buildings, whether it's 5% or 10%. And apparently there's a loophole uh, that if they list 5 or 10% of the units below market, that's technically uh, uh, affordable housing. I disagree. Um, and I'm just wondering anything you want to say on, on those topics. Well, that's a big topic, as you know, that, you know, we're not going to be able to answer in, in full detail right now. But I think it's important to talk about causes and not just symptoms, right? Having um, tents in the park is a symptom of a series of problems, many of which are created by the province. Mm -hmm. So let's start with disability payments. So Ontario disability support payments are criminally low. Uh, one of the things that I campaigned for in the provincial election was that ODSP levels should be doubled so that people have a chance of actually being able to pay a decent rent and live with some dignity. And, wit and as you know, the Ford government absolutely flatly refused to do that and have done a little token 5% increase, a few dollars a month, uh, which still leaves people mired in poverty that they, they can't get out of. Um, so proper funding of ODSP and Ontario Works, which is the provincial responsibility, absolutely should be first. Um, so that people have money to pay for housing. Um, the, the second thing is that we, we need to have less expensive housing options in the city. One of the classic examples is rooming houses. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about your family, but when my family first came to Canada as penniless immigrants, they stayed in rooming houses because that was all they could afford. Rooming houses uh, provide inexpensive accommodation uh, and have always done so. That's the role that they play. And yet we had city council refuse to legalize and properly regulate rooming houses so that we can create a lot more inexpensive places for people to live. And that is a decision that should be reversed, I mean, right away. Um, a third important factor is that many of the people who are you know, in, in tents and so on have mental health and addiction problems, which are not being supported. Uh, again, one of the things I campaigned on in the provincial campaign was the criminal underfunding of mental health in Ontario. Um, the, again, this is a decision, a deliberate decision of our provincial government um, to treat mental health with stigma and to not provide the resources that are necessary, which leads to compounding problems. I mean, uh, even before the pandemic, for example, there were 28,000 children in urgent need of mental health services who couldn't get it. Wow. And, it's, and it's worse right now. So if we continue to let mental health stagnate, um, not fund it, not cover most treatments with OHEP, not provide wellness hubs where people can get help early, then we're gonna have more and more people ending up in crisis that the police have to deal with. And that's a, it's terribly expensive. It creates an enormous amount of suffering. Um, 
But that's, that's my approach is, yes, of course, we have a problem once people are in crisis in the park. But the answer isn't just to deal with that symptom. We've got to go back to why are people ending up that way? And most of the responsibility is at the province. There are things the city can do, of course, and should do. Um, and as I say, legalizing rooming houses is a really good example. Um, uh, missing middle housing infill as a right, allowing subdivision of existing single family homes so you can have a basement apartment or a granny suite that creates a lot of less expensive housing units and also provides an income stream so that the owner can stay in the property longer. Um, we need to support nonprofit housing providers, a revolving loan fund, for example. So Again, when I was in deputy leader of the Green Party, I've stepped aside from that for this municipal campaign. We did a really detailed analysis of what the province can and should be doing, both about housing and about mental health. And again, those things have to work together. We need supportive housing units, and that's going to take funding from the province. But what we know is it's much cheaper to put someone in a supportive housing unit than to put them in jail. So... If we want to reduce suffering and save money, we should be doing it by providing supportive housing. One other important piece of this that I don't want to forget is the question of reconciliation with Indigenous people. Because again, you know, a significant number of the people that we've seen in the encampments are Indigenous people who have suffered the many depredations um, from residential schools to poverty inflicted by having most of the resources taken by settler society. And reconciliation is an important part of the city's obligation. And part of that probably is land back. Like some city land should be going back to the indigenous community. And the obvious thing to do with that is one of the golf courses and let the indigenous community grow food, have a place for ceremonies, have a place to develop um, green jobs, green businesses, and, and to put housing if that's what they choose to do. They deserve part of this city, which the rest of us took from them. And uh, I don't know what else we could give them beside the golf course, but Focusing just on the encampments, I think, is missing the, all the fundamental problems. And we're never going to solve the fundamental problems if all we focus on is the encampments. Well put. I like that. Uh, moving along, let's talk about uh, crime and police. Um, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, you're a lifelong uh, University Rosedale um, uh, resident, that our crime rate is high. And... Um, I'm just wondering, as a municipality, what we can do. I mean, I know I know a lot of that stuff is, you know, with the federal government and some of it's provincial. But as a municipality, we control the police service. What can we do to try to curtail the uh, the, the 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 crime rate and, um, you know, improve? I, I, I'm interested in your uh, opinion of the relationship between the city of Toronto and the Toronto Police Service and maybe how there can be better communication. I don't know, uh, whatever you wanna say on the topic. We need the police service. They provide absolutely essential protection, but we're asking them to do a whole batch of things that they're not good at, they're not cost-effective at, and frankly, they're not very good at. Um, I have looked more closely at the data in Winnipeg um, which showed that an astonishingly high percentage of 
the calls that police and other first responders attend to are driven by mental health and addiction. So this goes back again to what we were just talking about in terms of the accountants, is that focusing just on the moment of crisis uh, and sending the police in to dealing with someone who's in crisis isn't a very good solution. It causes a lot of suffering and it wastes an awful lot of money. Cities around the world have shown that there are better, cheaper, more effective alternatives than policing for managing social problems like mental health and addiction. So prevention first, enormously important, as I already said, dramatically underfunded in Ontario, both prevention and mental health treatment. You know, basically, if you don't have money, you've got long, long waiting lists in Ontario. Um, And then health-focused crisis response teams so that when there is a crisis, you have unarmed but um, mental health trained people who are good at de-escalation, who can go in and talk to the person in crisis um, and providing housing first. Uh, Denver is a, an interesting example of a city that actually turned to social impact bonds to fund housing first for 300 of their most frequent what they you know call frequent flyers, people who go through the emergency services and police and the criminal justice system over and over and over again. And they found that they saved a lot of money by giving people housing and support uh, instead of just throwing them in jail. So those things all help. Another example Um, that I think is really impressive is in Winnipeg. So there's a group called Aki Energy. Um, They decided to come up with a better way to deal with uh, the huge policing and first response costs occasioned by, again, a comparatively small number of vulnerable and troubled people who didn't have anywhere else to go. And at the same time, we've got this urgent climate problem. So what they did is they trained vulnerable community members as as renewable energy installers. And they paid for all of that out of the savings from the emergency responses, including the police services. And the result has been that they have more than half the licensed qualified geothermal installers in Manitoba our First Nations people have been trained by Aki Energy and they've installed more than $12 million worth of geothermal without any government subsidies. So there are really good options that we can see and copy. Um, Another thing that we can think about is, again, thinking about prevention, what helps people keep their mental and physical health? Um, access, early access to, to treatment and support like youth wellness hubs attached to schools and community centers has been proven to be quite effective, but so is access to nature and parks and green space, as well as to healthy food. All of those things help people stay healthy. Um, and if they're not in crisis, they don't end up in conflict with the police. We all save money, fewer people suffer. Absolutely. I, I really like those ideas. And, uh, you know, it, it helps, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, I guess the, the provinces, they, they, they share that data. That's how, uh, that data was available from Winnipeg, which is, it's really good. You know, when, uh, there are maybe similar problems in other provinces and, and, and they go after the solution and then they share it and, 
you can copy it and bring it over here to Ontario. So that's that's really good. There's um, so many mistakes out there. You know, why make old ones? Let's make new ones. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I want to talk about public health. Um, I'm interested in your opinion on uh, how you think the city handled the pandemic at the municipal level, of course. And um, what what you think uh, as a city we might have learned from the pandemic? And, and in your opinion, are we ready for the next pandemic? Oh, we're certainly not ready for the next pandemic. Um, I think that the city did really quite a good job considering what a ham-handed job the province was doing. <laughs> you know, if you if you look at Ford ordering that outdoor playgrounds be closed, when there was no evidence that outdoor playgrounds were dangerous. You look at Ford ordering small stores to close while letting their friends at Walmart stay open, selling the very same things. So again, making the rich richer and making the, the you know, the middle, middle class people, um, you know, on the hook. That was a, a bad provincial decision that just dragged the province, the, the municipality along. I think that considering all of that and considering how much we didn't know, the city's done a pretty good job. You look at, for example, the mass vaccination clinics, they were handled really well. I, I have uh, friends who volunteered in those clinics. They worked long, long hours at, at you know, considerable personal risk um, because they really wanted to help the community as a whole stay healthy. Uh, we've seen extraordinary heroism from nurses, from healthcare workers, from doctors uh, throughout the pandemic and it's just not a surprise that so many of them are exhausted now, especially when you add to that again, Bill 124, where the provincial government specifically singled out women-dominated professions like nurses to have their salaries capped at 1%, so they fall behind inflation every year at the same time that Ford was giving his own uh, caucus members huge, huge increases. So we have... Um, we've burnt a lot of people out trying to cope under really difficult circumstances without the support that they should have got. So right now we've got a big surgical backlog. We've got a big cancer backlog. We've got all kinds of other health issues that, you know, were neglected and are now much more serious and harder to deal with. And we've got a crisis in emergency rooms. We've got a crisis in nursing so our, our health system is exhausted. And COVID's not done. It's not done with us. There's more and more infectious variants that are being seen around the world. We've seen for the last three years, every winter, a huge spike in illnesses and deaths. I don't know why anybody thinks this year is going to be different. I mean, much forget the next pandemic. We're still in one. I, you know what, I've had this argument with other people where they're like, no, 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 we're, we're out of it. But I'm like, no. <laughs> what, it, what's the evidence that we're out of it? I don't see any. I, I would agree with you. More people have been sick and died this year um, than in a comparable time in any of the other years. 
and the con and the I mean, it's not just people who get who die right away. There's also a lot of long term consequences from COVID, and some research that suggests that every time you get COVID, the cumulative long term damage is greater, um, both to your brain, to cognition, to heart, um, to other parts of the body. COVID is a really serious bad beast, and it's not gone. I. I understand. Um, I actually had COVID back in January. Uh, it was a birthday present for me because uh, I'm a I'm a January baby. Um, and I got to tell you, you know, the, the day that I tested positive, I was in a bad shape. And that was a Friday. And my birthday was on the Monday. And I don't remember the weekend because I just honestly, I, I, I slept when I could. Um, I was sweating, but I was freezing at the same time and i was i i call it blacking in and out i don't know what it was um like i said i don't really remember the weekend <laughs> to this day and you should never get sick on a friday it's a bad plan <laughs> yes absolutely try to get sick on a monday um to my uh listeners i want to let you guys know um Advanced voting polls are open October 7th to the 14th. Voting day is October 24th. Get out and vote. Um, you want to share your, your website again and how they can contact you and, 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 uh, sorry, it's, yeah, your website that has your, your literature on it. Go ahead. Absolutely. Um, my website is votefordiane.ca. Um, the, there's a page with my platform. Um, there are, of course, links to take a sign or donate volunteer. People can volunteer from anywhere in Ontario, and we absolutely need your help. I would say especially to, to young people, anyone who cares about real action on climate and how much better it can make our life in the city, please stand up and make it happen. There, there's no cavalry, right? There's no one who's going to come and rescue us if we don't do this ourselves. And uh, the city council is our best shot. And Ward 11 is one of our best chances to have a real environmental champion elected to city council. So please lend me a hand, vote for Diane.ca. Also encourage people uh, absolutely to take a look at my podcast, um, Green Economy Heroes. You can get that anywhere you can get your podcasts. If you want to see my reports that I wrote as environmental commissioner, some of them are on the Vote for Diane website. They're all on the saxfacts.com website, which is my business website, S-A-X-E-F-A-C-T-S.com. Um, you can also find me on Wikipedia. You can find a number of my videos on YouTube. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. If you can't find me, there's contact information on the Vote for Diane website, and I look forward to hearing from you. You're all over the place. I'm all over the place. <laughs> and you know what? In the provincial election in June, we had 1,400 signs all over the riding. And we need to have even more this time. So give us a hand. That's amazing. And uh, I want to thank you so much for, for doing this interview. And, uh, you know, I wish you nothing but luck uh, on your campaign trail. Election night for me is always amazing you know i'm in front of the tv with uh, watching the mayoral races and all the ward races all over the gta i have to do that remotely this year because i'm going to be out of the country but uh, i will be voting before i leave and uh, like i said you know i wish you nothing but luck on your campaign trail and thank you so much for this interview 
And uh, I can't wait to see what happens next. I'm excited. Thank you, Matthew. I'm excited too.